Welcome to Gospel in Life. If someone asked you what the main story of the Bible is, what would you say? Today, Tim Keller is preaching through the central storyline of the Bible, what went wrong with the human race, what God has done to rescue us through Christ, and how God means to restore the world. We're glad you're listening with us. The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Christ presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Every week we're saying that the Bible is a single story, comprises a single story of what is wrong with the human race in this world, what God has done to put it right in Jesus Christ, and as a result, how history will turn out. And here, not only in chapter 3, but especially actually in chapters 3, 24, 25, and 26, we have the heart of the heart of the heart of Paul's message about what God has done to put the world right in Jesus Christ. We're justified freely through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice so that, we can be, that he can be both just and justifier of those who believe. Now, last week we looked only at that first term, justified, and we said that every other religion in the world calls you to prepare a righteous record and give it to God. 
But Christianity alone says that God prepares a perfect righteous record through Jesus Christ and gives it to you. And so you're saved not by performance, you're saved by faith and received by grace. But what is that faith? Uh, That faith, we're told here in verse 24 and 25, it's not just faith in general that connects you to God, it's faith in his blood. Faith in his blood. The blood of Christ. What does that mean? What does that represent? It's obviously crucial. It's at the heart of the heart of what God did to put things right. And to understand it, there's three words that Paul gives us, and we're going to unpack each of the three. Um, Two of the three are in the English version. One is not. The three words are redemption, propitiation, and demonstration. Redemption where it says sacrifice of atonement, is the word propitiation, and then later on, demonstration. Just in those three verses, those three words tell us pretty much what we need to know to grasp the meaning of the blood of Christ. And we can look at it another way. We're told here what we need, which is redemption, what he does, which is propitiation, and what it means for us, which is demonstration. What we need what he does, and what, we mean, what it means to us. First, what we need, which is, we need redemption. We can only be justified through the redemption with his, which is in Jesus Christ. Now, this word redemption, obviously this is an English translation of a Greek word, but fortunately for us, the English word has a kind of background that helps us. It's pretty close to the Greek word. Because even the word redeem, if you think about it, its background is it means to buy back. To redeem something means to liberate through a purchase. Now, the background of the biblical word lies in the fact that, uh, for, for, lies in the fact that in ancient times there was no such thing as bankruptcy law. There was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. If you owed creditors more than you could pay them, you lost your freedom. First, you lost your land, of course, and then you became a tenant farmer, let's say. But ordinarily, you also lost your freedom. You became a slave. You had to work for that person. You had to work for your creditor until you paid the person off. And it could easily be, and it often happened, that, that would be years and years, and maybe you would die before you paid them off, and therefore, you lost your freedom. Now, because that happened, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 25, in verse 25, You can go look this up. Because we knew people do get into poverty, things go wrong. There's famines, there's mistakes, and people do get into enormous debt. And they did lose their freedom. In Leviticus 25, 25, it says, we have to make a provision. And the provision was for what the Hebrew text calls a goel. Because people are going to fall into poverty, they are going to fall into slavery. And this slavery here means, of course, you know, indebtedness. Because of this, there needs to be what they call goels. A goel was a kinsman redeemer. There needs to be a redeemer. And a goel or a kinsman redeemer had to have three characteristics. One is a relative. If somebody fell into debt, someone fell into poverty, the, the, the kinsman redeemer, first of all, had to be of the same flesh and blood, a relative. Secondly, this person had to act not out of compulsion, but out of love. Freely, voluntarily. But then thirdly, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, had to buy the persons, buy their kinsmen, buy their, their uh, brother, their sister, buy their uh, liberation by bearing the cost themselves, by bearing the debt, 
taking all the cost and the debt on himself. And therefore, because of, the, because of poverty, because of indebtedness, because this happened, there was a provision in the Mosaic law for kinsmen redeemers. But here we have Paul saying we all need redemption. Everybody, the whole human race needs redemption. And that must mean something a little higher level here. For Paul to say we all need redemption means we're all in slaves, in slavery. We're all spiritually slaves. What does he mean then? What do we, re- what do we need redemption from? What is the, in what does our slavery consist? And there's at least two things we ought to keep in mind if we understand what the blood of Christ actually accomplishes. One reason we need redemption is we're enslaved to guilt, shame, and the law. We are enslaved to the idea that we're not measuring up. We feel inadequate. We feel guilty. We feel like we're not measuring up to standards. Now, I've got to do a little bit of... I, got, I need to work on you a little bit here. Here's why. Traditional cultures, and there's a lot of traditional cultures in the world, you know, generally not North America and Europe, but there's traditional cultures in the world, and they are shame and guilt cultures. In other words, in those cultures, shame and guilt is not looked like such a, at such, as such a bad thing. They, uh, in those cultures, shame and guilt gets you to do your job. They lay shame and guilt on everybody all over the place. And everybody says, that's fine. You know, it's, it's how you get people to do their job. In our culture, however, shame and guilt's a bad thing. Um, in our culture, we tell people, you need to write your own scripts for how you want to live your life. You should not try to uh, live up to anybody else's standards. You ought to decide what is right or wrong for you. And in our culture, shame and guilt is uh, something for, well, in an older generation, used to call that a neurosis. Today, we say you haven't taken control of your life. Okay. So shame and guilt, we don't have a problem with shame and guilt because we decide what is right or wrong for us. Well, yeah, Franz Kafka, the great writer Franz Kafka, was not fooled. And in his diary, you know, he was a very modern person in the 20th century, you know, modern uh, Western civilization, but he wrote in his diary, the state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. Sinful, yet independent of guilt. Now, what he means by that, we know, is this. We live in a relativistic culture. We say, oh, truth, morality, right or wrong, it's relative to me. We live in a culture that doesn't have the concept of guilt or the category. And we, live, we intellectually tell ourselves uh, there, there is no right and wrong except what I say. And yet we can't shake the fact that we feel a sense of shame and condemnation, that we're not adequate, that we're not living up, that we're nowhere close to being what we ought to be. So what he's saying is... we. We feel like sin, sinners even though we don't have the concept or the category for sinners. We, we, we think, no, there's no such thing as guilt and shame, and yet we're driven by it anyway. And actually, in some ways, it makes it harder to deal with than it does in traditional cultures. And so this is the reason why many, many folks have said, many psychologists and sociologists and various sorts of uh, observers and analysts have noticed that even though we all say we're free of guilt and shame in Western culture, but we're workaholics, we're obsessed with our looks, you know, uh, we, have a, a, we have a great deal of problem with, we, 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 we feel that we need to promote ourselves, we need to prove ourselves, and we're just riddled, riddled with anxiety, so we don't call that guilt. But that's what it is. All that comes from a need to prove ourselves, a, you know, a concern about how we look. That in traditional cultures, the workaholism sometimes, is certainly that it's a way, in traditional cultures, you see the guilt and shame. It's sort of like the oil leak is above the waterline, so you see where it's coming from. 
In Western cultures, because we tell ourselves, no, there is no guilt and shame, yet we're all driven, we're all anxious, we're all upset. You know, we can't take criticism. We're always, we're always having to prove ourselves. We have the same problem because we're human beings and we know, as Kafka says, there's something wrong with us. We are enslaved to guilt and shame, but it's like an oily coming from below the waterline. We can't really tell where it's from. But that's not all. Oh, and by the way, let me, let me give you one great reason why we'll never be f- uh, free of guilt and shame. Andrew Delbanco, in one of his books, uh, comments on an incident in one of Walker Percy's novels called Love in the Ruins. Uh, Max is a psychiatrist for whom pleasure without guilt is the essence of happy, enlightened life. You know, he believes that, hey, we're modern people. We realize that you have to decide what's right or wrong for you, so you should never, dis- never feel guilty. You should never let other people's standards, you know, oppress you. But he has a patient named Tom who's just had an affair and uh, he's having trouble understanding Tom because Tom says, look, I don't feel guilty about the affair, but I'm still troubled. So at one point, Max says, the psychiatrist, well, then what worries you if you don't feel guilty? Tom says, that's what worries me. I don't feel guilty. The psychiatrist says, but I don't see then what is it that is a problem if there's no guilt after your fare, what is the problem? And Tom says, it means you don't have life in you. And Delbanco comments this, quote, what, psych- <laughs> what the psychiatrist does not understand is the guilt he no longer feels had been his last reassurance that there existed something in the world that transcended him. And what Delbanco goes on to say is this, if there's no guilt or shame because you decide what is right or wrong for you, because everything is relative. Yeah, there's no guilt, but then there's no meaning. Because if there's no truth out here above us, not created by us, sitting in judgment on us so that we can have guilt if we don't live up to it. See, if there's no truth, there's no, there's no really right and wrong out here, then, then it really doesn't matter how you live at all, which means everything is meaningless. There's no guilt, but then there's no meaning. Because, you know, the world's going to burn up someday. And nobody even be around to remember anything you've done. So whether you live a loving life or a cruel life makes no difference at all. No guilt, no meaning. But you know what? We know that there's meaning. We know some things are right and wrong. We know there's a way we need to live. And therefore, we're guilty. We're enslaved to guilt, shame, inadequacy. It drives us. But that's not all. The other thing we need to be redeemed of is not just from the law, as it were. Not just from guilt and shame and the need to uh, live up to standards, we also need to be redeemed and liberated from what the Bible would call false masters. If, and we all do, if you feel the need to prove yourself, because we have this sense, as Kafka said, of being a sinner, we turn to our job, we turn to academia. Some of us, we're good students and we're going to try to be professors, we're going to try to be scholars. Some of us go to, into career and we're going to make money or we're going to have professional success. Some of us go into relationships and if this person loves me and I have a family. But if we're looking at those things as our significance and security, they're not just a job, they're not just a school, they're not just a, a family, then they become a master. Here's what a slave master is. A slave master is someone who has no boundaries and someone who beats you up if you fail. 
See, we often say, oh, my boss here in New York City is a slave master. Well, uh, you don't know what a real slave master is. A real slave master has no boundaries. They can do anything they want to you, and they do. And when you fail a little, little bit, they beat you. And how do you know whether your family, how do you know whether your career, how do you know whether your school is a slave master or just a family, a career, and a school? And the answer is you can't say no to them. See, they're slave masters. You work too hard. See, you can't, uh, you, you can't stop them. You know, if you are enslaved in a relationship, that means you can't say no. You can't walk away. See, you've got to have them. They're your significance, your security, your very self, your identity. Same thing with making money. Same thing with your career. These things aren't, this isn't just a job. This isn't just your money. This isn't just a school. This isn't just a relationship. They are slave masters. And if you don't live up, they beat you. It's that self-hatred. It's that self-loathing. They beat you. You need to be redeemed. You need to be redeemed from the law. You're enslaved to the law. You're enslaved to guilt and shame. You also need to be redeemed from the false masters that we set up in order to shield us from this sense, cover our shame, this sense that we're not what we ought to be. So we need redemption. What does he do about it? Second word is propitiation. What he does about it is propitiation. Now, by the way, everything I just told you about redemption, that God wants to save you and redeem you from your false masters, from being enslaved to the things we do, uh, from guilt and shame. Everybody in our modern Western culture loves all that point, that you love point one, okay? No matter who you are. Hey, point one, I liked. Point two, you're going to hate. Because the second thing we're told here, the thing God does to affect the redemption is God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, it's three words, but it's actually... Translating one word, and it's the word halastrium, which means propitiation. In the old King James Bible, the word propitiation, it's an old English word, and it means to turn away wrath. Propitiation means to turn away wrath, to appease or satisfy anger. The word propitiation means the Lord pays the debt to justice himself. There's three things in there pays the debt to justice himself. Now, here's the place where modern folks really, really freak out about what the Bible says about the cross. So let me slow it down, and let's talk about those three things that propitiation means. Let's do it in this order. First of all, it's all about justice, wrath or justice. God's wrath is his anger against injustice and sin and evil. And that's the reason why all through here, the whole reason why Jesus had to die is demonstrate justice, to do justice, to deal with justice. He can't just forgive. He can't just let things go by. Justice has to be done. That's what you see there. God's wrath is his settled opposition to that which is wrong, evil, sin. It's not emotional crankiness. Nevertheless, we really don't like this idea of an angry God. And people say, all the time, let's not stress the anger and justice of God. Let's stress the love and goodness of God. But that shows you don't understand even how a heart works. You can't pit anger and justice against love and goodness. It's the love and goodness that makes you angry at injustice. There was a woman some years ago, uh, a Christian woman, writing an essay about this, and she, rem- she, re- she struggled with this idea of God being angry and, you know, uh, a just angry God. But then she remembered 
uh, a time in her life when she was watching two talented people that she loved very much sinking into drug abuse. And she said, quote, I felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them. Can't you see? I said to them, don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You become less and less yourself every time I see you. Don't you see what you're doing to the people around you? And then she goes on. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in experience. And if I, flawed narcissistic woman that I am, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition out of love, how much more a morally perfect God who has made them? Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. What she means is rather simple. The reason why God is so angry at the sin and evil that's destroying the human race that he loves and made, destroying the world that he loves and made, the reason he's so angry is because he's so filled with love and goodness. If he wasn't filled with love and goodness, he wouldn't care. So the more loving you are, the easier, easier you get angry. The easier you get angry at sin wrongdoing, things that are destroying the things that you love. And so it's, it's a pit love and justice against each other is, is silly. That's the first thing. So propitiation means justice must be satisfied. So that, that you don't pit that against love. Well, then the second thing, the second aspect of propitiation is, is that the blood of Jesus Christ pays the debt toward justice. Most Christians, even pastors, struggle to talk about their faith in a way that applies the power of the gospel to change lives, especially in our skeptical culture. Tim Keller's book, Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism, is a guide for anyone who wants to become more effective in communicating about their faith, pastors and laypeople alike. Drawing on his years of experience, Dr. Keller will help you share your faith in a more engaging, passionate, and compassionate way from the pulpit or in the coffee shop. Preaching is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of Christ's love with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. When someone wrongs you, wrongs you deeply, there's only two things to do, and both of them entail suffering. The one thing you can do if someone really wrongs you, really harms you, is they've robbed you of something. They've robbed you of happiness, they've robbed you of reputation, they've robbed you of money, something. And if they have wronged you, then the one thing you can do is you can find a way to hurt them. Uh, It's a lot of fun, at least to start with, uh, it takes a lot of ingenuity, and uh, you know, we have a lot of creative people in New York City. And you, you find ways to hurt them. You find ways to rob them of their happiness. And, you, and so you go after them. If they've hurt you and you hurt them back, pretty much as much as they hurt you, and maybe a little more after all they started it. Next thing you know, you feel that the, the debt is, all, is gone. I mean, they don't owe you anymore, right? Because you made them suffer. But there's a problem with that. Because if someone wrongs you and you pay them back and make them suffer, evil wins. How? Well, first of all, you become a harder person. You be hard, become a harder character. You become somebody who um, 
doesn't trust people like you did, you know, that it makes, you're, you're crueler, you're more able to do something, like, pretty cruel. You know, you, you thought it was all justified, but now you've, you've done it, and you'll do it again, easier, faster than last time. Not only does the evil win because it makes you a hard character, but the perpetrator, if you're paying that person back and making them suffer, they'll never see the truth. They'll never see what they did. And then they'll come paying back, coming to you, and they'll think, think well, I'm going to pay you back, and then you'll pay them back, and people will be involved in it. There's always other people involved with it, and on and on it goes, and evil wins. So if we make them suffer and pay the debt, then what, what, what should we do is so evil doesn't win? We forgive, but you know what that means? Then we suffer. We bear the loss of reputation. We bear the loss of money. We bear the, the loss of happening. We suffer. But that's the only way perhaps the perpetrator will ever see the light. It's the only way you will stay a, hard, a, a, a soft-hearted person instead of a hard-hearted person. It's the only way evil doesn't win. Now you realize what happens? When a wrong is done, there's only two things that can happen. They suffer or you suffer. If a wrong's done to you, they suffer or you suffer. That's the only way to deal with it. That that cannot be willed away. It has to be paid through suffering. Wait a minute. <laughs> if you see, even at your individual human level, that when someone wrongs, when someone does a wrong, the debt cannot be willed away, but has to be paid through suffering. That there's, 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 there's a debt pay, owed to justice, and you can't just will it away. Justice is owed something. And it can only be paid through suffering. If you, explain, if you understand at the individual level, as that writer said, us, flawed, narcissistic, sinful people, then how much less can an absolutely just, because he's an absolutely loving God, just let the sins go that is destroying the human race, that is destroying the world? He can't. But he loves us and he wants to, he wants to forgive us. So what is he doing on the cross? He's doing on the cross cosmically what you have to do, even if you want to forgive a sin individually. He's paying the debt to his own justice. He's satisfying his own justice. And that leads to the last part of propitiation. See, some people say, I hate this idea of a wrathful God. Well, then you don't have a loving God. Well, I hate this idea that, 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 that sin has to be paid for like it's a debt. Why can't you just forgive? Well, you, don't, you can't just forgive either. All right. Well, one thing I really hate is this idea of blood sacrifice, that a God needs blood to be appeased. How awful and primitive. And you're sitting there saying, I remember back in school, junior high school, high school, I read a book once by a guy named Homer. can't remember his last name. And I remember there was this place where Agamemnon, one of the Greek uh, generals, he had gotten on the wrong side of one of the goddesses, Artemis, you know, and, and uh, she wouldn't give him fair winds to get to Troy. So they were all going to lose the battle over there. And so what did Agamemnon do, you know, to appease the wrath of Artemis? He sacrificed his daughter, Iphigenia. And when Artemis looked down from heaven and said, aha, okay, well, you killed your daughter. Well, all right, maybe you really do honor me. Okay, I'll give you fair winds. And you, you say, that's primitive, that's barbaric, that's horrible. That idea of God, thank goodness that that kind of religion has sort of died out in the world, I hope. At least it's, I think it is. And guess what? Here you have Paul bringing it back. How awful this God that needs to be appeased, you know, this begrudging, angry God that needs to be appeased by the death of his son. But you're forgetting something. It says here, God presented this. God himself presented this. See in verse 25? 
And look, this is the everybody. The Trinity boggles the mind that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons, one God in three persons. I know it boggles the mind, but right now it's a huge help. Because on the cross it was God Himself coming in the form of Jesus Christ and demanding not our blood and not your child's blood but shedding his own blood. It's the opposite of paganism. It's the opposite of barbarism. It's the opposite. Not like it at all. Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins. And as a result, we're redeemed. But that's not all. There's one more thing that we have to look at. There's very, one more very important word. This incredible atonement the death of Jesus Christ, the redemption of Christ on the cross, the propitiation of Christ on the cross, was a legal transaction, but it's also a public demonstration. The word demonstration that's used again and again means a public presentation. In other words, the cross was not designed simply to change our status, but to change our hearts. Not just to change our status through a legal transaction, but to change our hearts by showing us who God really is and who is he both just and justifier of those who believe. Here's how we go at this. You want to have your heart changed? First of all, listen. In the Old Testament, the principle of a redeemer is there. It's in Leviticus 25, 25. A goel, a kinsman redeemer, someone of the same flesh and blood who voluntarily and lovingly bears the debt himself. And we have a great case study, you know, in the Old Testament. The greatest Goel, the greatest kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament is in the book of Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth is pretty heart, is heart-rending and also heartwarming. Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess. She was uh, not a Jew. She was not an Israelite. She, was, she lived in uh, another cu- country. And there was a Jewish family that was sojourning in this other country. It was called Moab. Ruth was a Moabitess. And um, they, had a couple, they had a couple of strapping young men, and Ruth fell in love with one of them and married him. But then a plague came through, and all the men in that whole family died. And that left Ruth a widow, and it left her mother-in-law, Naomi, a widow. And Naomi turned to Ruth and said, I want to go home. I want to go back to Israel. I don't have anything here, but I don't have anything there. But at least I have some friend, you know, family there, and I want to go back. And, of course, that's the place where Ruth gives the very, you know, famous uh, speech, you know, entreat me not to leave thee, you know, uh, where you go, I will go, you know, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so Ruth um, and the other daughter-in-law go back with Naomi to Israel. But there in Israel, things are hardly any better at all because there Naomi's family had owned some land, but because of debts, she had lost it. And when you have a band of widows women, widows, in a patriarchal, agrarian society, you have absolute economic marginalization. They were in danger of starving to death. But so that they wouldn't starve to death, Ruth began to glean. Ruth decided to go out to glean. And gleaning was what the poor could do. You could go out into a field, and they would just take the sheaves that were at the margins of the field, the leftovers, as it were. But Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner. And as a result, and she was a young woman, and therefore she was in tremendous danger when she went out in public and did that, of being abused. So she got up her courage, though, in order to save the family, and she went out and began gleaning. And Boaz, the owner of the field where she was gleaning, saw her and was kind to her and came and said to her, 
I have told my men not to touch you, which shows how brutal that society was at the time to a, you know, a racially other woman. I've told my men not to touch you, and I want you to glean here, but don't go to any other field because you could be in real trouble there. You just come back here every, every day. So she picked up her sheaves, and she you know, was very happy, and she went home and told Naomi, and Naomi says to her, Boaz, the man who owned the field was Boaz. Why, he's a kinsman. And then Ruth decided on a very, very bold plan. And the next day, Boaz wakes up in the morning in his bedroom, and there at his feet is Ruth. And he's startled. Who is this? And recognizes her. And then suddenly Ruth says, spread your garment over me and be my kinsman redeemer. Marry me, love me, and redeem me and my family. And Boaz, like a good kinsman redeemer, looks down upon her and says, this realizes who Naomi is, same fle- because you are of my flesh and blood, and because I do this voluntarily, he says, I will be your kinsman redeemer. I will buy back the land. I will, I will pay the debt. I will bear it myself and buy back the land and redeem the family. But more than that, he doesn't, just, he doesn't just cover her debt. He marries her. He loves her. He doesn't just cover the debt. He doesn't just give us pardon. He gives her justification, as it were. He, all that he is and all that he has becomes hers. And so instead of just covering the debt, he floods her life with love and honor. How wonderful. What a nice story. Wouldn't it be nice if it happened to you or me? It can. It does. It has. Because Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. First of all, what did it take for him to become a kinsman? For him to be our flesh and blood. He had to come from heaven to earth. He had to empty himself of all of his glory. See? He had to be found in likeness as a human being. But secondly, what did it take for him to be not just a kinsman but a redeemer? It didn't just cost him his money. It cost him his life. Because our debt wasn't finite, it was infinite. But look at what he has done. Propitiation, see. He bore the cost himself. Do you not see now what it means to be a Christian? Being a Christian is not to say, I promise to truly try hard. I'll try to live like Jesus. I'll try to come to church. I'll try to obey the Ten Commandments. No. What it means to become a Christian is to say, spread your garment over me. You know, be my redeemer. And you know what Jesus will say? I will. Even though it costs me everything, I will. And he won't just pardon you. He won't just cover your debt. Don't you understand? He unites with us. He takes us into his life. He comes into our lives. And he, all that he is and all that he has, that's what we were talking about last week, becomes ours. Now, this is what's demonstrated. And what's demonstrated now is he is both just and justifier of those who believe. Now look, look, that's what demonstrate means. Look and be changed by this. There are... There's a kind of God of traditional religion that says he's a demanding God. It's a God of all demanding. You better be good. You better be good. And if you try hard enough, maybe I'll take you to heaven. But this God, the God of the cross, is more just and holy than that. Because Jesus Christ's action of going to the cross is, is the most perfect obedience. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and he didn't deserve it, he didn't need to, but he did it for us voluntarily. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer. He perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he perfectly loved his neighbor as, that's us, as himself. He fulfilled the law. That's what Paul says. This absolutely fulfills the law. 
The God of the cross doesn't just want you to try hard. The God of the cross wants perfect obedience to the law and in Jesus Christ he gets it in your place. So see, on the one hand, the God of the cross is more holy and just than just the demanding God of, person, of, of uh, in a traditional religion, but on the other hand, he's more loving than the secularized liberal view of God that says, oh, I just believe in a God who loves and accepts everybody. And whenever I have somebody say, oh, I just believe that God loves and accepts everybody, I always say, what did it cost your God to love you? And they say, well, I don't, I don't know, nothing. But the biblical God, because he's a holy God, is an infinitely loving God. Because he's so holy, he couldn't just forgive. He had to suffer, and he did And so what you have on the cross is a God, do you believe in the blood? Do you believe in in, in the need for the wrath of God to be appeased by the blood of Jesus Christ? Then you have a God far more holy than the most moralistic, legalistic religion and far more loving than the most secularized, liberalized religion. At once, why? He's both just and justifier. That's what demonstrates it, and that will change the heart. See, fear alone never changes the heart. You better be good or you're going to go to hell. That doesn't change the heart. I just I have a pastor friend once that was on call at a hospital. You know, one of those where you're a pastor locally and if somebody in the hospital suddenly wants, you know, a pastor, they, they call you in the middle of the night. And one night in the middle of the night, he got a call and he ran in. And when he got there, the, it was a, the, uh, the man said, I'm so sorry, pastor. I am so sorry to have bothered you. You know, I thought I was going to die. They came in and said I had one month to live. And then 15 minutes later, they realized it was the wrong x-rays. And I'm not a very religious guy and, you know, I'm really not interested, but I mean, for a moment there, I really thought I needed you. (laughs) It's a true story. You know what that means? Fear cannot awaken love. Only love awakens love. Fear cannot awaken love. Only love awakens love. But I'll tell you another thing. This idea of a God who just loves everybody and accepts everybody, that going to change your life? Does that electrify you? Does it amaze you at his love? Of course not. You say, well, you know. No. An absolutely abusive parent and an absolutely permissive parent ruin the kid. If you're totally permissive, no boundaries, totally abusive, always demanding, always beating up, it ruins the kid. But the God of the cross is neither. Neither. If you look at him, it'll change your life. I mean, it'll really change your life. Do you not, do you not believe that? I was reading the autobiography of Billy Graham recently, and he tells about the fact that in 1955, he was invited to speak at Cambridge University to the students at Great St. Mary's Hall. And when it came out in uh, the public that he was going to be doing that, uh, just uh, in August, just before he went, uh, there were letters to the Times of London really upset. I mean, in other words, the, the culture was upset that this fundamentalist Baptist American preacher was going to come and speak to our best and brightest about a primitive kind of religion, you know, the blood and atonement and, and hell. You know, the letter said, you know, we, we believe religion is good in its place. But we've gotten past that. That's Americans. They're all so conservative. They're all so fundamentalist. And this, this freaked poor Billy Graham out when he read all those letters and he felt like everybody said, you're just a country bumpkin and you're coming and talking to our students at Cambridge. And so the very first three nights he was there, he tried real hard, you know, to uh, you know, quote the intellectuals and quote the scholars and he fell flat on his face. And after that, he got down on his knees. He said, my last talk is tonight, and I'm just I'm going to forget it. I'm just going to preach the cross. And there's another man who remembers being there, and I got this off a tape a few years ago of what happened that night. He said, I'll never forget that night. 
I was in the totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor of Great St. Mary's with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one side of me and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other side of me. Both of these were good men, but completely against the idea that we needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And dear Billy Graham got up that night and began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice in it. The blood was just flowing all over the Great Hall, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were horribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ and also smug, knowing that no bright, sophisticated, young British person is going to listen to any of this stuff. And it was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. There were only 8,000 students in the, uh, in the student body then. I remember meeting a young pastor some years later, a Cambridge graduate at Birmingham Cathedral, and over a cup of tea I said, where, were the Christ- where did Christian things begin for you? Oh, at Cambridge in 55, he said. When? Billy Graham. Uh, what night? It was Wednesday night. How did that happen? Well, he said, all I remember is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's for the first time in my life thinking, Christ really died for me. What was unbelievable to the Dons was that a man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed the life of a young person like that. But so it did. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated through the redemption and propitiation of the cross of Jesus Christ that you can be both just and justifier of those who believe. Oh my, that's what changes the life. You are infinitely holy and infinitely loving at once because of the cross. And we pray that, uh, that the kind of unique lives that should flow from the grasp of that, lives that are filled with a passion to be like you, to be as honest, to be as courageous, to be as true, to be as sacrificing, to be as loving as you. And yet at the same time, we know that when we fail, that we're covered by Christ. So this, this, this passion to live like you, at the same time, this gentleness with each other and with ourselves when we, uh, when we don't. This unique kind of community. We want to be that. We want to be that. And we ask that you would help the cross of Jesus Christ to be smack in the middle of our hearts, our consciousness, our feelings. Let it liberate us from our false masters. Let us liberate us from guilt and sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Dr. Keller. If you were encouraged by this podcast, we invite you to consider becoming a Gospel and Life monthly partner. Your partnership helps more people access resources like this podcast. Just visit gospelandlife.com partner to learn more. This month's sermons were recorded in 2009 and 2016. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017 while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.